Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you are listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, September 14th, 2007. This week's pre-recorded episode number 50 comes to you from Studio B in Coriopolis, PA. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is my co-host, the Z-Man, Cliff Slotnick. Hey, Joe, how are you? Great, Cliff. Great to see you back. And... The cyber jockey, CJ Zach Slotnick. Zach, you okay? You gotta be more careful, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm here, I'm okay. Come on, CJ, hang in there, we need you. We'll be needing CJ big time this week because today is our first highlight show where Cliff and I will be bringing back some of our favorite clips of guests from the past year. We'll also be doing a little commentary between guests, but before we do that, let's move over to Cliff for the microband trivia quiz for this week. Hey, Joe, it's football season. The Steelers won. They beat the Cleveland Browns last week. Hopefully uh, they'll perform well this week as well. Uh, The the microband trivia question for September 14th comes from the sports world. It deals with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Which Hall of Fame Pittsburgh Steeler won a Clio Award for advertising? Back to you, Joe. All right. Let's go Steelers. Sorry about that for you Browns fans out there, but that's the way it goes sometimes. Anyway, before we get rolling any further here, let's make sure we stop and thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Okay, you won't be able to contact the show live today since we are pre-recorded, but uh, we would like people to please send us an email if you're interested at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at IAQ Training, or you can email cliff at czlotnick at cs.com. All right, Cliff and I have been reviewing some previous shows and making sure we've given our listeners what we promised we promised some great guests which i think we followed up with we promised a soapbox where people would have the opportunity to sound off on issues that were important to them we've had several interesting debates we've had a lot of technical talk and we've gotten our renewal credits through the iaq council so people can get renewal credits through listening to iaq radio we've kept track of association business through our association watch segments and Let's get to the highlights from show number one. One of our favorite people, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Hello, 
in our first show, we called upon Dr. Dietrich Wild, an expert in toxicology, to deal with the subject of dose response. Oh, absolutely. It's the dose that kills. It's not uh, uh, the, the chemical. Yeah, uh, too much of table salt can kill you. Uh, too much if you drink distilled water faster than you can eliminate it. And you read that sometimes during the summer when little kids have drinking contests. All of a sudden, people are dead from drinking water that nobody thinks of as being toxic. It's the dose that kills. This principle has been known for 500 years, and uh, it's not the poison, it is the dose. Too much of anything is not good for you, and it doesn't matter what it is. Now, when, when we talk about the dose that kills, is there individual susceptibility with respect to toxicity or would we be talking about something other than toxicity when we add individual susceptibility into the uh, picture? Well, you touched on probably one of the most difficult top, uh, topics in this whole uh, field. Yeah, sure. Uh, individual susceptibility is, is of, of concern and uh, some people react to certain things for whatever reason. Uh, ask an allergist, why does somebody react to it and somebody else doesn't? Um, that is one of the most difficult, difficult things to study and to explain and to get a handle on. So that is certainly another aspect that is out there. And we have seen that in certain environments, certain people reacted, others didn't react. Um, in fact, in indoor environment, we, we say that if if 80% of people in an office building are happy, this is kind of good. We, are, we, we discriminate, unfortunately, against these other 20%. And there may be in these other 20%, maybe somebody who cannot uh, work in an environment for whatever reason. Like I sometimes say, some people got dealt a very bad hand on the day they were born, with certain deficiencies, and uh, yeah, what are we going to do with those people? That is one of the most difficult questions to answer. During the same episode, Dr. Wild discussed how industrial hygiene research he had done on occupational exposure for people working with cotton and being exposed to cotton dust related to indoor environmental quality issues. After this segment, we'll tell you how a similar type of situation is in the news now. Sure, that was uh, in the mid-80s, early to mid-80s. Um, in fact, it was known much more before that, but in the mid-80s, the University of Pittsburgh got a little bit of money from uh, Cotton Incorporated, and there was a problem with cotton workers who are exposed during the carding, during the processing of cotton, to cotton dust, whatever that may be. It's obviously, it's a, it's a mixture of many, many, many things. And at the time, we thought that bacteria would play um, a role with it, and particularly endotoxins. Endotoxins are produced by gram-negative bacteria. It's in the outer cell wall of these bacteria, and um, the uh, toxicity is associated with the lipid components and the immunogen uh, immunogenicity uh, with the polysaccharide component of these cell walls from uh, bacteria. Now, they are known to produce breathing problems in exposed uh, persons. And certainly the cotton worker is, you know, one of many uh, of, of the exposed uh, people. So uh, we at the university at the time, uh, my, my former teacher and later on my boss, Dr. Allery, Eve Allery, uh, we started looking at that. And I was responsible for the particulate matter and setting up uh, exposures to cotton dust, and we can't, and today you can't use human volunteers anymore. So we used uh, guinea pigs to produce or study the effect of cotton dust 
on the lungs and on the breathing ability of guinea pigs. Interesting. Peter, I've got a question for you. Sure. Uh, were these workers that were working in the mill, were they entirely unprotected? Were they given respirators? Did Ed this work environment have ventilation? <sighs> If you looked, I saw a couple of cotton mills, and this is this is now 25 years ago, 30 years ago. And I, I think it's like a farmer. I don't really think you can educate a farmer uh, to wear a, a a respirator and test it and tell him about filtration efficiency. Uh, it was kind of the accepted risk of the profession if you do that. Well, you will be coughing a little bit. That, yeah, it, that's when OSHA started looking at it, and we have a cotton dust standard today. We developed samplers to sample for cotton dust in the workplace, which was relatively new. So I think we learned about the disease from way before OSHA and started looking into it uh, closer uh, you know, as as time went on. That's interesting. Now, these bacteria, and the reason I think that we we can discuss this with respect to indoor air quality, we also find bacteria and fungi that are in the indoor environment. And I'm wondering if there's any, if you could give us any insight as to, you know, what your feeling is after teaching the last five years, uh, people doing mold remediation, doing indoor environmental quality investigations. What's your, what are your thoughts on how the types of studies you did back then relate to what's happening in the indoor environment today? Well, uh, yes, I mean, it, it has, it has uh, uh, applicability. Um, uh, certainly, we we have bacteria in the indoor environment, no doubt about that, and we are not really a hundred percent sure whether it's only the bacteria. I I certainly, and it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, yeah, too much of anything is not good for you. That 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 is well known, and. I was thinking about it as I learned more and more about molds and mold in indoor environments and studies were done. Uh, uh, summary papers were published in Canada and in the United States and in Europe. Obviously, molds are you know, universal. They are, you encounter them everywhere. And uh, you know, some, some of these molds produce pretty powerful chemicals. I mean, you know, the best known is probably, you know, penicillin, which is produced by a mold called penicillium. That's pretty powerful stuff. And I uh, kind of was thinking back, and I said, you know, we concentrated um, at these endotoxins. But as I said before, if, if you go in a cotton mill and you look at cotton dust, you know, there's, there are all kinds of things in there. There may be silicates in there, certainly um, uh, some chemicals, agricultural chemicals, call them pesticides, certainly bacteria. And I have no doubt <clears throat> that there are a ton of molds uh, living very happily uh, on cotton dust or in cotton dust. So it would be, I think it would be interesting to maybe revisit that again and um, get some young people in um, who would be interested. The question is, who will fund it? Um, who would be interested in it? Uh, at the University of Pittsburgh, all the people who were involved in those studies are retired and are gone. And there are no new young people who have shown any interest in uh, in that arena. So that's that's un in a way unfortunate. And, and and maybe hey, it doesn't have to be done at the University of Pittsburgh. There are many other good universities where people are interested in uh, such uh, issues. And uh, well, they can carry the ball, and uh, maybe we make advances there. Popcorn is not only an occupational hazard, but also an indoor environmental quality issue now as well. 
bronchiolitis obliterans or constrictive bronchiolitis also called popcorn workers lung is a rare disease of the lungs in which the bronchioles are plugged with granulation tissue it is a rare and life-threatening form of fixed obstructive lung disease popcorn workers lung in rare instances bronchiolitis obliterans may be caused by inhalation of airborne diacetyl a chemical used to produce the butter-like flavoring in microwave popcorn and in many other foods such as candy and potato chips in this context bronchiolitis obliterans may be referred to as popcorn lung or popcorn workers lung in september 2007 Dr. Cecil Rose, pulmonary specialist at Denver's National Jewish Medical and Research Center, warned federal agencies that consumers, not just flavoring or food factory workers, may be in danger of contracting bronchiolitis obliterans. At least one consumer of microwave popcorn has been diagnosed with this disease, which is the first known case involving a consumer. On September 4, 2007, the flavor and extract manufacturers recommended the reduction of diacetyl in butter-like flavorings. Several popcorn companies have removed this as a flavor ingredient. So essentially, buttered popcorn not only makes you fat, but makes sure you can't breathe either. I guess. (laughs) Indoor Air Quality Radio, Episode 2 included a fascinating interview with mycologist Nick Money. One of the first questions I had was, how did you come up for the title for the book? And it's Carpet Monsters and Killer Spores, A Natural History of Toxic Mold. There's some wording in there that some of the um, industry gurus, for lack of a better uh, term, would find a, you know, a bit alarming, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. So the, a natural history of toxic mold really speaks to what's in the book. The, the carpet monsters um, part of the, the the title comes from my own childhood encounters with with mold. I was a pretty severe asthmatic as a kid, and I uh, uh, began to fantasize that there were actually these monsters in the carpeting and so forth that were causing me to feel so lousy and trying and stop stopping me from breathing so that that's part of it and i do talk about the uh allergic effects of, of fungal spores and uh so what the other part of the title the killer spores i mean certainly that's the way that the media uh presented this um in in the earlier um earlier years in this this decade i think well especially surrounding the melinda ballard case i mean 60 minutes and 2020 and so forth had uh uh, expose is about mold and, and suggesting this was the you know the worst thing ever to happen to the United States. But uh, so that's where I, I uh, get the killer spores uh, idea from. As I read this and all the research that went into it, and sort of following up on what we just discussed, how long did it take you to research and write this book? I think it was a, it was about a year's work from from start to finish to really research that, and I'm a fairly swift writer, so um, I was yeah, it's, a, it's about a year's work. What exactly well, is a mycologist? So a mycologist, and there aren't that many of them, I think, in the whole world, is somebody that that in a in a professional setting studies fungi and studies the biology of these organisms. Uh, do you think this is a growth field, a growth industry? How many students, uh, for instance, do you have in a mycology class that you teach? So, so actually, it's a, it's a field in some ways that, that's contracting. I mean, the the kind of um, organismal biology that I studied years ago in in, in colleges is not uh, taught on too many campuses today. So that that's something actually at Miami University that we we pride ourselves upon is that we actually still cover a good deal of this kind of organismal biology, just talking about groups of organisms and how they're related to one another and actually what they do in the natural environment. Sunscreens and environmental barrier. The fact that black mold utilizes a substance known as melanin as a sunscreen. 
Yeah, that, that's absolutely true. And there's a lot of these these dark pigmented fungi that that use. It, it's not really one compound. There's a whole series of different melanins. I mean, we have melanin in our own skin. It's a somewhat different chemical. But the fungi, or many of them, actually do use this as a sunscreen, and they'll actually use it as a natural barrier to to other to, to different substances too. It's a it's a it's a protective structure that that forms within the cell wall of these these dark pigmented fungi, including Stachybotrys. Hmm. You know, a quote from your book: "Hyphae function as microscopic mining devices, probing, penetrating, and thoroughly permeate solid materials and extract." nutrients in their path. That's kind of a new way for me to look at my athlete's foot anyway. Yeah, and that's certainly what it what it's doing. I was just looking at some images the other day actually um of, of fungi penetrating skin and nails and it, it's really interesting to look at them forming these burrows within within our own tissues. It's uh, uh alarming, I guess. Certainly if it's your own tissues that these things are, are growing within. Well speaking of alarming with that, I thought something called apoptosis was even more alarming. What does that word mean? Well, that's that's the technical term. Well, there's another technical term for that, which is programmed uh, cell death, and that's actually a natural part of of, of life. That um, uh, cells within our body and cells within other organisms actually die according to these genetically regulated programs, and that, that's a very very important part of of of, of development, and it also in sort of day to day housekeeping within the human body. Amazing. You know, one of the things I think was interesting is, you know, we all know that there's two scoops of raisins in a box of raisin bran. I never realized that for every spore that was out there, there could be as many as 300 cell fragments floating around. Yeah, that's that's the the result of some really interesting work in the last few few years. That um, when you actually do do spore counts, so based upon indoor air sampling, you're only looking at a relatively small fraction of the number of particles that might be present in the, in the air, because when you when you pass air over a fungal colony, so something growing on a on a surface on drywall, for example. It seems, at least according to these studies, that these smaller particles are also getting getting into the air, and of course it's possible that, that, that those particles can get into the uh, uh, nasal passages and uh, and the lungs if um, people are in in the uh, in that location. You know, one of the interesting things I thought also in the book was the fact that um, you brought up this theory, and I, I think it may be more than a theory because in the book you were talking about. Uh, discussing this with one of your business colleagues with the fact that certain insects could actually transport mold, including Stachybotrys. Yeah, I mean, that, that's certainly a poss possibility, although there's no um, really clear evidence for this at this this point. Um, but it, it relates to this wider issue of actually how Stachybotrys gets around. So this is the mold that... that um, is most interesting, at least in the courtroom, uh, and yet it forms these big spores, and they they're formed in these sticky heads, and they're not easily aerosolized. They don't get airborne very easily um, because they're sticky and because they're heavy, relatively speaking. And, and so this is an interesting issue about sort of the the ecology of the indoor environment and actually how these molds get around, or specifically how Stachybotrys gets around, because it's it's kind of a sluggish thing, not well designed for 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 moving around in the air. Uh, one of the things that you've done in the book is you've provided some guidance to homeowners and also to remedial practitioners alike, and I'm sure that we might get some discussion on this in the future. Uh, your opinion that spore counts are next to useless for assessing many indoor mold problems, and unless a mold problem is likely to lead to a lawsuit, you're not convinced that anyone should pay a contractor to collect air samples and make moisture measurements. Uh, how would you suggest people that are going into these homes and inspecting ones gather their data? Are you a believer in surface sampling instead? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a very, very complicated issue. It would take us longer than, you know, a few minutes to really, really get into into this. But I think that a lot of air sampling data have been misused, especially in, in the courtroom. Um, sometimes they're useful. If, if you can actually conduct some air, air sampling and show that you've, that you've got a much, much higher concentration of spores in the indoor air versus the outdoor air, then that tells you that maybe you've got a source of of, of mold within the home that's that, that's getting airborne certainly you know sort of supports that hypothesis. Um, but as I said, I think these data are sometimes um, overused and too much much is made of them. 
surface sampling certainly certainly important, but I think most mold inspectors and IAQ specialists have, are also pretty good at just going into a home and figuring out pretty quickly if there's mold growing, visible mold, uh, and a lot of it, and, and whether or not that home is re going to require some kind of professional remediation. I mean, at, at this level, mycology really isn't anything close to, to rocket science. It's just uh, uh, you know, it's alarmingly obvious when you go into a home if it's got a really serious microbiological problem. Um, there's a statement in your book, and I'd like to know whether you stand by that statement. And the statement is, the mere identification of stacky blotches in a home doesn't mean the residents are in danger. Could you yeah, that's, abso that, that's absolutely true. And in fact, um, in the book, I talk about doing a, a, some mold sampling in, in, in my own home that's about 12 years old at, at this point and hasn't got any... Uh, water problem. Um, but uh, subsequently, I did find stachybotrys in my home. We've got a, a plant stand with a big plant pot on it, and my wife tends to overwater the plant, in my humble opinion. Hopefully, she isn't going to listen to this. Why, why not? Why neither? <laughs> but um, sure enough, underneath that, that pot, you can pick up stachybotrys, and um, you can see these jet black colonies. Um, you know, you can get close to identifying them without a microscope. They're really pretty distinctive. So, um, and certainly I wouldn't recommend evacuating my house or anything there just because of the mere presence of Going back to what Cliff just asked, I did get the impression, however, that you don't, you're not a minimalist either, in that you do feel there may be some issues with respect to too much stachybotrys within a home or too much mold in general rather than focusing on stachybotrys. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I think think most physicians will, will agree that molds can can stimulate allergic symptoms. So if you've got a lot of mold spores in a home, um, anybody that suffers from asthma or hay fever, uh, other other allergies, you know, may have their symptoms exacerbated by the by the presence of mold. Um, so that that's the first point to make. Um, in terms of looking at stachybotrys specifically, I still think there are some interesting studies out there and some unsolved cases that um, give one cause for concern. So if, if there's a lot of growth of stachybotrys in a particular home, I, th I think that really is something that, that deserves some further study and some, some caution. Um, so the most celebrated cases are those then out of um, Cleveland, Ohio in the 1990s and these um, infants that suffered from uh, lung bleeding. And that's really a, an unsolved medical mystery, I think, at this point. There's some people that stand by the the claim that this was as a result of exposure to stachybotrys and other people that, that really refute this. So, um, I mean, it is a nasty organism, and, and certainly if there's a lot of it around in, in one's home, I think, I think one you know should be prudent and use some caution and, and actually uh, seek to eradicate it. Where are we going today, Mr. Peabody? To talk to Glenn Fellman, September 8th, 2006. Hello there, Peabody here. And this is the Wayback Machine. We're traveling through time. And this is my boy, Sherman. Speak, Sherman. Hello. Good boy. I wrote a publisher's message about the S500 standard when it came out because it was stunning news to everybody who heard it. When the new edition of S500 came out this year, it was following a 30-day public review period that was posted um, on the ANSI website. Nobody commented during that 30-day public period. And the reason why is because nobody, myself included, knew that the IICRC S500 standard was available for public comment. And when I say nobody, I mean literally nobody. I, I, spoke, I spoke to the editors of the top four industry trade journals. I talked to Cleaning and Restoration. I talked to Mold and Moisture Management Magazine. ICS and Clean Facts. Talk to their editors and publishers. Nobody on their staff had, was aware of the fact that the industry could comment on the S500 standard. So when the uh, comment period closed, uh, IICRC went back to ANSI, said, we got no comments. Uh, we would like to have this approved. And it was approved. And it, it did follow the ANSI process. But I think it, it didn't follow the spirit of the process. Um, the spirit of the process is to encourage and promote public comment and peer review, and I don't think, I think it was a little disingenuous uh, the first time around. We're sending you back to the future! If it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Tom Yacobellis on low-priced duct cleaning. You know, oh. after, Joe, after doing it for 20 years, 
um, you know, a lot of our offices, when they get set up in the community, send us these ads. And we're just not in that business. We're not in the business of competing with someone who's cleaning off air conditioning registers for a living and taking people's money. The If you understand what why we do what we do, we clean mechanical systems and restore them so that we can give people an opportunity to to see whether those whether contaminants in that mechanical system was affecting their health health we don't make any promises or we don't make any claims that it will or will not all we say is is that the mechanical system by the manufacturer's specifications is supposed to run in a clean continuous operation the systems that we come across have been dirty for five six ten years and so the systems that we're restoring really require a good deal of time dismantling of the components to bring them completely back to the way they were supposed to be. It simply cannot be done quickly. We find that most of the customers that use us, because they're really calling us for indoor air quality reasons, and they really do have issues, that they usually can see right through the fact that they know they're not going to get what they're looking for for $89. But as a final comment to this, I will tell you, the Environmental Protection Agency, I did a study with them years ago on this, and they wrote a document called Should You Have the Air Ducts in Your Home Cleaned? And it was, there were some good things in it, and there were some not-so-good things in it. But one of the things that they placed in the document was that a low-cost duct cleaning probably means you're going to get a bad job. Uh, a high-cost duct cleaning doesn't mean you're going to get a great job, but a low-cost duct cleaning probably means you're going to get a, a bad job. And there's one problem with that in our industry. Now, what we tell people is, you know, if you have a fan that was running and you and you just never dusted the fan off, and it was just running for a couple of years, and it was full of dust. As long as that fan continued to run, most of the dust would not dislodge. But if you go in there and you hit the fan and you just start to dislodge some of the dust, you're going to have a condition now where the particulate in the room itself is going to rise up, at least for a period of time, because you, you've started to disrupt only part of the dust. In this business, once you start to disrupt the contaminants inside a mechanical system, you have to finish the process all the way. Otherwise, we actually can contaminate the indoor environment if it's not done correctly. The first clip from show three is from Dr. Harriet Burge. We asked her about her pet peeves, and this was her response. Um, I guess, Dr. Burge, what are your pet peeves either about your peers or the IAQ industry as a whole? What really aggravates you? What stachybotrys really aggravates me. <laughs> and um, I, because I think that people have, have developed a belief system about it rather than a logical thought process, hypothesis-driven um, thought process about it. Because uh, it's, it's driving a lot of the legal things that are going on. It's driving some of the work that, that we all have to do now that we wouldn't have had to do before. You know, it, when I first started, you could go into someone's house, you could assess the problem, you could tell them what was wrong, you could get it fixed, and you could go away knowing that you'd helped somebody. Now you, have, you do all that, and then you go away wondering, oh, am I going to end up in court? And um, a lot of that court stuff is driven by, by um, imaginary facts, and that really, that really upsets me. The second take we have is the result of Dr. Burge listening to episode two, and it's a follow-up to a clip that Cliff had played from episode two, and it has to do with spore fragments. I listened to last week's show, actually. Oh, great, great, yeah. great. Well, I, I was very uh, curious about a statement he made about cell fragments and the fact that spores can break into many of these cell fragments. I have begun to see discussion of this issue in other areas, like on some of the chat boards, etc. And I'm wondering if uh, maybe you could help us a little bit with understanding, first of all, how, how do we measure these cell fragments and how do we know they exist? Well, if you're a good microscopist and if you do spore trap sampling, you can see occasionally, you can see cell fragments. Um, I think it's a, um, an exaggeration to say that this happens a lot. Fungal spores are really quite strong little guys, and they don't break up easily. Um, 
if you if you take a wall with stachybotrys on it, for example, and scrub it really hard, you will break some of the spores, and you'll see broken pieces of the spores on a spore trap sample. Are there little teeny tiny pieces that we're missing? Uh, probably, although we've done some work with allergens um, that are not attached to fungal spores, and a very minute fraction of the airborne allergen is not attached to intact spores. And if you count spores and correlate spore counts with allergen concentrations in the air, uh, you get a very close correlation, which indicates to me that the majority of at least the allergen is actually present on the spores themselves and not in these fragments. But I don't deny that the fragments exist. Um, actually, with grass pollen, it's been beautifully illustrated that grass allergens, grass pollen allergens, are borne often on very small pieces. But there's a really logical um, logical reason for that. And with the fungal spores, it's just been my experience that they don't break up all that easily. But you know, he he they they certainly do, and you can certainly find them, uh, find the 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 evidence in the air. It's just, I think, not going to be the answer. When I say that there aren't enough stachybotry spores in the air, people say to me, oh, well, you're not thinking about all the fragments. Well, I am thinking about the fragments. Um, I think they're probably there, but not in high enough concentrations to be the answer to this, to this difficult question. The next clip we have was a question that uh, Cliff had posed about the null hypothesis and how important Dr. Burge feels the null hypothesis is when doing indoor environmental quality investigations. Academic and I, I, I believe you're quoted with making these statements. Academic scientists in their protective environments tend to assume that for-profit businesses are primarily interested in the bottom line and only secondarily in effects on people. When we design studies on specific products, we tend to test the hypotheses that whatever health or exposure effect we suspect is in fact present. We should, however, be testing the null hypothesis that the product is not producing the effect that we suspect. And I, was just, I just thought it was just a brilliant comment. Yeah, uh, okay. And I, you know, I spent a lot of time preaching that particular statement. Um, scientists, the, the whole scientific method involves testing the null hypothesis. And I think that investigators, if you're going into a, into a space where when you walk in, you don't just see mold when you walk in, and you really have serious questions about what's going on in the environment that you have to answer, I think the only acceptable thing is to make a hypothesis, decide in your mind what you think might be going on, and then try to prove yourself wrong. And the huge advantage of that is that you're not likely to be as influenced by your own biases. And we all have them. Everybody has biases. And if you go about trying to prove yourself right, it's very easy, actually, to prove yourself right. You can come up with all sorts of devious ways of saying, oh, yeah, I know I'm right, so therefore, and I'm going to prove it in this and this and this way. So I, I, that's probably the cornerstone of my entire research effort. Another interesting segment we had in Episode 3 was Carl Grimes of Healthy Habitats. He talked a bit about his history of being a victim of indoor environmental quality issues, but I felt his discussion of the bell curve, exposure, and susceptibility issues was very enlightening. We call it Two to Tango. Being somewhat successful. Do you watch that TV show, Dancing with the Stars? No, I don't. Because uh, I figured that you were probably a good dancer because you made this analogy of taking two to tango, uh, exposure and susceptibility, and I was wondering if you could comment on that. Well, Okay, well, the way most people think about exposure, that's once they get the idea that it's important. And first of all, there's a concept out there that it's important, they need to pay attention to it. Uh, they look only at exposure. You know, what's, in, what, what's causing this? What's, what's creating my headaches? What's creating my allergic reaction? What's creating the muscles, the fatigue, the... The, the, the mind that is so thick that it can't function, uh, it can't remember, all these kinds of things that people attribute to aging or you know, some sort of even mental illness. Um, and the industry that has grown up, uh, particularly from the, with, from the industrial roots, 
of what's causing illness in the factory, what's causing illness in the, in the mine, uh, uh, in the workplace. It was exposure-based, and regulations were set up. And then our really good people, like our industrial hygienists, would say, okay, these are the known problems, whether it's dust or asbestos or uh, benzene or formaldehyde or some of the really nasty industrial-type chemicals. There's a, there is a regulation for it. There's a way to test for it. So we test, and we say we compare our test results with the regulation, and it's either out of compliance or it's in compliance. If it's in compliance, we don't need to do anything. If it's out of compliance, then we need to act until we get the test results that say it's okay. Well, that works fine if you have regulations, if you have known baselines to compare it to. What was happening with originally, you know, two, three percent of the population that were chemically sensitive or hyperallergic or chronic fatigue or something like that is they were reacting to something, but it wasn't show it wasn't even showing up on the test as you know, we can detect it, but it's below the regulatory level. They were saying none detected, and in fact, they would interpret that as there's nothing there. And as the person would uh, persist because they were legitimately sick, they were then told by doctors and public health authorities, look, there's nothing there, and if you persist in this behavior, then we need to send you to a psychiatrist. Well, that's kind of how it evolved, but what, what people were leaving out was what is the susceptibility of that person? At what level do they react? We have this thing called a bell curve, which is a distribution of um, at what exposure level does the, a large group of people, do you see that first reaction, the first event, and then as the exposure increases, you get more and more until it kind of hits half the population or so, and then, of course, the bell curve drops back down again toward finally the last one standing. And that's all, they would, that's all that was being looked at until actually 1989 when uh, Dr. Claudia Miller and Nicholas Ashford uh, did the study at uh, the New Jersey State Department of Health, and they asked a very interesting question. They said, what happens before the first uh, event, the first occurrence on that bell curve? Well, that's kind of a stupid question when you look at it, and especially from an exposure point of view. The first occurrence is the first occurrence. There is nothing before the first occurrence. But basically what they were asking was, is there something else going on that we're missing? Instead of just staying with, you know, looking between the blinders of um, uh, this is what we know and this is what we, under what we understand, they stepped out of the box and said, something else must be going on here. And what they said then was there are people that react to these substances not in just a toxic way but in an allergic way. It occurs before toxicity. There's not as many people that react to it, and it ends more quickly, but it does overlap. Furthermore, there's a third one that they called sensitivity. Not many people react to it, but some of that sensitivity starts at near zero exposure, and this is not just self-reported events. This is things that could be physically measured. So they was the first ones that I can see in my research that really started talking about the combination of exposure and susceptibility. So that's why it takes two to tango. You can't have a tango dance without two people. You can't have a complaint um, anywhere, but specifically in the indoor environment, unless you have uh, a person and you have an exposure. So what's the exposure level, and at what level does that person react? Once you start looking at it from that point of view, then you bring in all the science and engineering and all the industrial hygiene, all the regulations, and that's a critical part of it, but it does not eliminate the person. So for, to, to check for a regulation, you don't need to know who that person is except to have them sign off and, and pay the bill. If you start from the susceptibility side, include that, then you start from the susceptibility side and compare the two, then you start getting a more complete picture. And you can help people then that aren't being helped by the traditional methods. 
And the key to it is, like you said, Cliff, it takes two to tango. You need exposure, and you need also that person's susceptibility. And it's got to be their individual susceptibility, not the susceptibility of the general public. I'm a specific person. I may be the only person that reacts the way that I do, but that's my life, and that's what I have to deal with. I'll All right. short answer in a couple of minutes. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Carl. Now, we are running a little bit behind, but I, I can't let you off the line without asking you a question, Carl. Uh-oh. You chair the Indoor Environmental Professional Chapter of the IICRC S520. A show highlight, Lisa Wagner on industry volunteerism. What types of things may cause you some frustration about this volunteer work? I, I know I do quite a bit, and I get occasional frustration. Do you have the same problem? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> I think whenever Funny you, you should ask. I, yeah, I, th- I think whenever you get uh, a lot of people together, um, especially a lot of people who are used to being their own boss, and then put them in an environment where now we're supposed to work together as a team and uh, find a compromise um, that you have a couple dynamics that happen. You either get a a really big split of blue team, red team type, uh, you know, not going to give up any inch at all because if I I waver, then, um, you know, that's going to somehow tarnish my reputation. Um, what, What I found with a couple of the groups that I've been on is that initially that kind of of aggression that can happen purely from staking your uh, position on on certain opinions and taking things personally rather than taking it just as an issue of of facts and different sides and trying to craft some compromise so everyone as a whole can benefit, is that a lot of good people get scared off in the very beginning. And, And I've seen a lot of Good directors come on to um, even my regional trade associate uh, tr- trade association with CFI, um, and on a, a bigger extent on, extent on IICRC come on, can't take the heat, and then turn around and run away as as quick as they came in. Um, and so the the struggle is, and what I actually enjoy taking part in, is trying to listen to both sides. Uh, get the facts out there and try to see if there are some ways to bridge that gap and um, have had good success with that in my current role in CFI. Um, I also have a phenomenal team that's on the board of directors right now with CFI. We have a great president. We have a very good one coming in to take his place next year. And with ISRC as well, a, a lot of um, usually see the press on on the negative things, but there's a lot of good happening there as well. And uh, that's one thing I like to do also is, um, though I like to point out some things that I'm not happy with um, because I I like the openness, I like transparency, Um, I also like to give kudos to the good work that's going on because it tends to not get as much uh, market play as, as some of the things that people aren't happy with. I got a question. You know, some trade associations, there are many of them, many of them in a variety of industries. They seem to have the same people that are there forever and ever and ever. And you know, I think you kind of wonder sometimes what is the motivation of doing this volunteer work and get nothing but abuse. <laughs> well, I guess if you get nothing but abuse, then you need to start asking yourself whether you're a masochist, and that's why you know that's why you're staying there. Um, I personally, you know, find it very rewarding. I mean, I, associations. Well, you, you know, you have two paths. You can either sit on the outside and complain about how you don't like anything that's going on in your industry and continually use that energy to point out the wrong things, or you can get off your butt and get involved and try to make a difference. And, um, you know, I'm wired to, if I see some things I'm not happy with or maybe some areas that I can contribute to, to jump in, even if I'm super busy with everything else because I have a couple companies I run beyond the volunteer work that I do and try to make a difference and be able to see when your efforts are not producing any results. And if they are not producing any results and you gave it as good a try as you could, then you should jump out and see are there other, 
avenues that you can make a difference in as opposed to the place that you tried, but at least you gave it an attempt. And um, so I've never seen any of that work as thank as thankless. I have some great long-term friendships that I've developed in all of my board roles. And, uh, you know, this business, like any business, is all about the people. Ultimately, it's about the people, whether it's your clients, whether it's your team members, whether it's your industry peers, whether it's your mentors. And, uh, you know, for me, it's it's all part of this community we're part of. And uh, I, I wouldn't change my involvement at all. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw Cliff, putting this episode together was quite an eye-opener. Listening to the early shows really made me realize how far we've come, but also how much excellent content was in the early shows. I really look forward to going through the same process with all the past shows, and I hope our listeners enjoyed this episode. I want to thank my co-host Cliff Zlotnick and our cyber jockey Zach Zlotnick for helping put this show together. You know, reflecting back, Joe, it was advantageous to have and maintain an archive of past shows. You know, one year later, we learned some things. We know some things changed. Some things do remain the same. We can learn from both history and from past shows. Absolutely, Cliff. Let's quickly thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. We couldn't do the show without our guests, and we want to thank them again for show one, Dr. Dietrich Weil, for episode two, Dr. Nick Money, Glenn Thelman, and Tom Yacobellis, and for episode three, Dr. Harriet Burge, Carl Grimes, and Lisa Wagner. And most importantly, I know I speak for all of us when I say thank you to our growing group of loyal listeners. Without you, the show wouldn't be what it is. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week for the next episode of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production.